Wonderful. You may be seated. If you have your journal, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 14 because I want to give you some notes to write in. Uh, as always, you can follow on you version and, and get all of, all of my notes this morning, and there's quite a few in there this morning. Uh, at the top of your journal, Romans 14, right there at the top, I want you to write these words, how to live in freedom. That's really what chapter 14 is about. So let's start with this at the top of our page, and when I end the sermon in a moment, I'll come back and I'll address this in a question form as our thesis question at the end. So write that at the top of the page. And if you would, go ahead and uh, take your pen and put a star beside verse number 19. Verse number 19 is the thesis statement. It is the main point of this chapter. Circle it, put a star by it, something. So if you just mark 19, uh, mark verse number 19, you'll understand he's teaching down to a point, and then he'll teach away from that point again. Let's start here this morning. I want you in your mind, many of you have traveled with me to very far away places, and I'm, I'm always blessed to have you traveling with me, and you know that you're always free to go when we go somewhere as a church on mission. But many of you have traveled, and some have not, but at least in your mind for a moment, travel with me this morning. Let's go to one of these really remote uh, villages uh, in the jungles of India. So I want you to imagine mountains, I want you to imagine bamboo, as big around as your leg, like telephone poles going up into the sky. It's the most incredible bamboo you've ever seen in your life. Banana trees all over the place. Mountains, like maybe you've seen a picture of Vietnam or something, just covered in green. Terrace down the sides where they're planting rice on, on many of the mountains. We're going back into a remote village, and as we enter into the village, there's a dirt path to just a dirt rut. And as we're walking near the village, the children come out and they begin to line both sides of the path. And they are just giddy with excitement. They're, they're, they're smiling and, and laughing. And, and as we're walking down the road, we are very cognizant of the fact that no Americans have ever, ever, ever stepped foot in this village. They're touching our skin. They've never seen white skin. They've heard about it. No white person has ever walked here, and certainly no American has ever walked here. In the center of the village, now coming into view, we can see there's chairs set up on the village green and brightly colored people, and some drums are beating, and there's a, a delegation of adults ready to receive us. The head man is waiting. That's what they call him. The head man is waiting for us. And when we get there, words of greeting are exchanged them to us, us to them, in a very formal type manner. They ask us all to have a seat. Most of them will sit on the ground, on stumps, on stools, but they found some plastic chairs for us to sit in. It's a big honor because they know people from your side of the world don't like to sit in the dirt, and uh, we can't squat and sit on our heels. If you've ever tried it, your American legs don't work that way. We're a little too chunky for that, it's the truth, but... Uh, now, here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember we've come here not for tourism. It's fantastic to see new things, but that's not why we're here. We've come here to share the gospel in this region, to lead people to Christ and to make disciples, and the gospel is the thing that's at stake. And in order for you and I to share the gospel to these people in this region, 
the chieftain has to give us his blessing or you're going home. Does that make sense? He is the gatekeeper for his people. And in order for us to share the gospel, the chieftain, the head man, has to give us his blessing. So we all sit down together and in a few moments, a stack of banana leaves. Now, banana leaf is not a small thing. It's about this long and it's about this wide. Think of a placemat for your kitchen table twice. That's about the size of a banana leaf. Banana leaves of stack is produced. And someone begins to take those banana leaves and roll them into cones. And then they fold over the bottom. You've got a nice little green drinking cup. A bottle is produced. Dingy, old bottle. Not a clean new bottle. A dingy old bottle comes out of somewhere. They set it down in front of the chieftain, and I can see the label. So once upon a time, an old whiskey bottle, and the, the label's curled and, and peeling, and some of it's missing. The bottle itself, to me, looks like it's 20 or more years old. The glass bottle itself is very old. It's been refilled countless times because it's not amber. It's some other color. So whatever's in that bottle is not what was originally in that bottle. It's been refilled 20, 30, 50. It's just been reused out there in the jungle a million times. I have, and you have, no idea what's even in that bottle. It doesn't look like anything we've even ever put to our lips before. They take the banana leaves now, they uncork the bottle, pomp and circumstance, the drums are beating, the women are dancing in tribal wrappers, the kids are all watching it. They uncork the bottle, pour it into our banana cups, and the chieftain raises his cup to us in a toast, a toast of friendship and a toast of fellowship and a, and a, and a toast to a future relationship. Do you feel any tension yet? Do you feel any tension yet? Now, I can't tell you how many untold cups of chai tea to the Indians with lots of milk and sugar. I can't tell you how many cups of chai that I have consumed sitting in the company of Buddhists and Hindus on home visits where one of my disciples has taken me into the home of someone in Burma, in India, in Nepal, in one of these countries. One of my disciples says, come, we're going to go visit some, some non-believers, unconverted we go into the homes of the idolaters, and when we get into the home, they treat us with such magnificent hospitality, such kindness. And they produce a, a tea set, and they're pouring chai in the big cities of these uh, uh, places. And they bring out these spicy snacks. It's like a, you would think of it as maybe Chex Mix or something like that, but it's flaming hot. It will set your world on fire, okay? And it's unique to these people, and they'll put the, the little snacks there. And sometimes they'll even bring real uh, uh, entrees, food out, and present it to us. While we're sitting there in the living room together, you can see above my head this little box fastened to the wall. It's the shrine of the family idol. Sitting right here in the living room, maybe right over my head while I'm sitting on the couch in the living room. And there in the shrine is the idol for their family that they worship. Maybe there's some incense being burned right there on the edge of the shrine. 
Maybe there's some little offering they have made, some colorful flowers there, like on a lay you would wear hanging around the shrine. And maybe even they have blessed the food that's presented to us in the name of their idol, much in the way you would bless your food in Jesus' name. That's the blessing on the food. Maybe they've blessed their food in the name of their idol and in dedication to their family idol. And now they put the food in front of you. You feel the tension yet? My question to you this morning is simply this. Would you eat it? Would you drink it? And you may be saying in your heart this morning, no way. There's no way, Pastor, I would ever defile myself with such food or drink. Okay, Paul, inspired of God, writing Romans chapter number 14, acknowledged your reaction. Paul acknowledged in Romans 14, inspired of God, saying, I acknowledge that there are some things that some believers cannot bring themselves to do. And here's the interesting thing for all of us this morning. Paul didn't disparage that sort of decision. He didn't put down that sort of, see that decision is not really made with the head, it's made with the gut. You just have a gut reaction to, I would never do it. Okay, well, Paul didn't put down that sort of gut reaction. You won't read in Romans 14, Paul saying to one group of believers, Oh, for heaven's sake, why don't you guys just grow up and stop being so immature? You won't read that. Uh, what you read is something paraphrased like this. Okay, if that's the way you feel, no problem. Okay, if you have that sort of gut reaction, no problem. Just don't be so judgmental towards everyone else. And don't require everyone else to have the same reaction about these things that you have. Don't make everyone agree with your position. You see, your fellow believer also has a master. And it's not you. I want you to remember this. Your fellow believer has a master. Amen? And it's not you. <laughs> it's not you. So you can't require everyone to agree with you. Now, chapter 14 is written in chiastic form. I know you don't care, but I need to explain. Chiastic form means it's written like an A-B-B-A form. I want you to think of a sandwich with meat in the middle. How about that? Sandwich with meat in the middle. Bread, meat, bread. That's the way Romans 14 is written. So if I can teach down through the bread and down into the meat to verse number 19, which is the meat, then what follows verse 19 is just a repetition of the top half. Does that make sense? It's just another piece of bread. It'll say the same thing that I've already said in the beginning of this sermon. So I will not be able to teach the whole chapter this morning, but don't fear. It's just another piece of bread restating the same. It's wonderful bread. It's bread that you should eat. But you'll have to read it this, this week in your, in your devotion time. I won't have time to cover everything. In Romans chapter number 14, this is what you need to know. Paul presents two designations of believers. It is the contrast between the weak and the strong. This is what's being set up in Romans chapter number 14. It is the contrast between the weaker brother 
and the stronger brother. And if I say brother, I'm using it in a very generic sense because I mean brother, sister, all of us this morning, okay? It's the weaker versus the, uh, the stronger. He's presenting two different classifications of people that are in this room this morning. The weaker of you and the stronger of you. It doesn't necessarily mean spiritually weaker. I'll, I'll try to explain as we go. It means weaker in conscience. Let me read Romans 14, verse number 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, how are we to respond to him? How are we to respond? Welcome him. Listen, if someone wants to come and be a part of our fellowship and our church and, and learn about Christ and grow and make disciples, what's our response? Welcome him. Welcome him. As for the one who is weak in the face, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, let me tell you what's being set up. What's being set up is this conversation between the weak and the strong. And Paul implies that the majority of the Christians in the church of Rome, it's who the letter is being written to, it's the book of Romans, he implies that the majority of the Christians at the church of Rome are the strong Christian, strong in the faith. The weak brothers in the text are the Jewish Christians, and the strong brothers are the Gentile Christians. Let, let me expound on that. The weaker people in the text are the Jewish converts that come out of Judaism and a rule-keeping background. The stronger Christians are the Christians who came from an idolatry pagan background. Feel any tension yet? That's what's being set up in Romans 14. The weaker are weaker because of the baggage of their culture and former religion. That's why Paul calls them the, the weaker. They have lots of baggage. The stronger in the text are those converts who are walking in unfettered liberty as a result of their understanding of the gospel. Now, for 14 chapters, we've laid out for you the awesomeness of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God presented to us. The gospel is this awesome plan of God to redeem you and justify you by faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Now, the people who are strong were the pagan people who got saved and fully comprehended the awesomeness of the gospel, and they fully understood their unfettered freedom and liberty that came to them as a result of the gospel. They don't have any hang-ups at all. They're just walking in liberty. Now, let me get personal. Because my roots come from the tradition that determined the more restrictions a person could put on themselves and everyone else, the more spiritual they were. Do I have any friends here this morning? Okay. My tradition that I grew up in and that I came from was a tradition, a form of worship, a form of theology, a form of practice that thought that the more restrictions we placed on ourselves and the more restrictions we placed on each other, the more uh, spiritual we were. Romans chapter 14 blows that sky high. Paul does not agree at all with what I just described. Here is the problem. 
Paul teaches that my former tradition was the weaker group. You feel any tension yet? Letty, Paul teaches that the group you came from is the weaker group. The group you came from, Jeff's the weaker group. Paul, the group you came from is the weaker group. That's the teaching of Paul in Romans chapter 14, and that's why it's controversial. Because that group thought they were the stronger group. Paul says they're actually the weaker group, and they're weaker because they do not fully embrace an understanding of the gospel and the liberty that have in Jesus Christ now having been redeemed, not by works and not by rule keeping, but having been redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ. And whether a person drinks a glass of wine or eats pork or fries up a chicken that's been sacrificed to an idol or drinks fermented gooseberry juice out of rolled up banana leaves with a animistic tribal chieftain all of those scenarios are issues of conscience not of rule and regulation they are issues of conscience and God has given us a liberty on such issues our diverse opinions are not only to be tolerated according to Romans chapter 14 our diverse opinions on these matters are to be embraced and celebrated we don't all have to have the exact same opinion on matters of conscience. Those diverse opinions being tolerated in the congregation is completely in harmony with every one of Paul's epistles that he wrote to the churches. Now, before you overreact, this doesn't mean that we ought to turn a blind eye to immorality. Not at all. This is not some open door to do whatever you want to do and live however you want, want to live. Listen, uh, adultery and, and murder and theft and, and a lying tongue, those are not issues of conscience. Those are issues of sin and need to be dealt with as such. They need to be repented of, turned away from, and ceased. Now, that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about issues of conscience. Now, Paul personally felt an enormous sense of freedom on matters of preference, personal preference, which is the strong position. Now, we know this. I don't want to teach chapter 15, but let me give you a sneak peek before he wraps up the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 15, verse 1, this is what Paul says, we who are strong. Paul certainly includes himself in this group as he's writing to the Romans. Most of you are strong. And we who are the strong. He's making his appeal to the strong group of which he includes himself in that group. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for good to build him up. So now Paul included himself with the strong group because Paul didn't have any hesitations whatsoever about what he ate he had no reservations whatsoever about what he drank. And you can see that as you read the rest of the Pauline epistles. Now, I hope you can appreciate how remarkable this was for a man who was a former Jewish Pharisee. <laughs> now, this is the irony of This is what's amazing. I hope you can appreciate. I hope, I hope, what is your explanation? Let me ask it to you this way. 
what is your explanation for how Paul went from a life dominated by rules? That's what Judaism is. It's the Old Testament law. And then more. It's a life dominated by rules and restrictions to a man who's living in complete liberty. How do you explain that? How do you go from being a Pharisee to having a ham sandwich with a Gentile? How do you explain that? I'll tell you how you explain it. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for herein is the righteousness of God revealed. Paul said, the gospel has transformed my life. And I realized rules are fine, whatever, but I'm not bound by them because the gospel has set me free and I can eat oysters on the half-shell catfish sandwich and, and, and pulled pork and barbecued ribs with my Gentile brothers. No problem. I feel complete liberty to do that. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, uh, if, uh, maybe I'll preach this a little bit later in the year or next year, Paul thought that befriending unsaved people and eating with them was the thing we should all be doing. As a matter of fact, Paul had no problem eating a ham sandwich or having a glass of wine with a Gentile disciple. He thought that would be a great thing. He thought it would be an awesome thing to sit down and be able to fellowship with them in their context, in their environment. Uh, and matters of conscience didn't bother Paul at all. Paul determined, though, as he was outlining this to the Roman church, that not everyone would have his position. I'm assuming this morning not everyone has my position. But Paul determined, since there are two positions, one is the weaker and one is the stronger, and Paul basically determined that since I see this exists pretty much everywhere, these two positions, Paul said that God surely must have ordained for there to be different viewpoints on these different things, so each group must have an obligation to get along with the other group. Is that fair? So whether you believe one way or you believe another way, the bigger point is not what you believe. The bigger point is, are you willing to get along with the other group? Paul believed that since in the church at Rome and every church since the church of Rome for 2,000 years to this present church this morning, people are going to have different opinions on these matters. Paul said, whether you did eat ham or whether you drink beer or whether you do this, or whether you, Paul said, that's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is how you're going to treat your brother. Are you willing to overlook matters of the conscious for the harmony of relationships within the church to the mutual edification and building up of your brother, even if they don't have your personal pet conscience positions, if that makes any sense at all. What's ironic about this whole conversation is that the weak think they're the strong. What's ironic about this whole conversation is that the weak as defined by Paul and the Bible, believe they are the stronger because they don't do all of these lists of things. Because they abstain from this and abstain from that and abstain from this and abstain from that. See, I'm superior. No, Paul said you're weak. Not understanding your liberty in Christ and the ramifications that the gospel has brought to you. You're the weaker of the two classifications of Christians. And I'm not dogging on anybody. I'm just laying it out there as Paul laid it out there what's ironic further is that the strong can sin in their strength 
if they push their liberty too far and hurt the weaker brother. Let me make sure you understand what's happening. The group who abstains from everything are the weaker group because they think they're pleasing God by keeping a list of self-imposed rules that are not in the Bible. They're the weaker brethren. The people who are the stronger brethren have liberty to eat and drink and do whatever they want to do. Except they're not free to hurt their brother. So if the stronger position of liberty says, hey, weaker brother, come over to my house. We're having pork and wine. Now you're hurting your brother, and now you've sinned being in the stronger position. Does that make sense? You can sin on both ends of this scale if you're not careful, if you don't maintain the position of mutual edification of your brother. And so each of us, this is what we have to remember this morning, each of us has an obligation to push our fellow believers towards Christ-likeness in our sanctification, not pull our brothers away from Christ-likeness. Now, let me, me, me say it a different way. Believers have erred by allowing ourselves to be divided on matters of conscience. We've erred. We've made a mistake. And I see it just looking back at my past, looking back at church history for the last hundred years, and even broader Christians have made a big mistake by allowing ourselves to be divided into factions over matters of conscience. Because what that does is it fractures the body of Christ into opposing camps based on uniformity with non-doctrinal matters. In other words, I want to get a group of people who believe what I believe on, on irrelevant issues. And now we begin to build a whole movement on irrelevant issues and we begin to fracture and divide the body of Christ and pit group against group. And it, the results of this are too numerous for me to elaborate this morning. There's a whole host of negative outcomes that come from such division. What you get is you get congregations where everyone has the same opinion about everything. That's a bad thing, by the way. A congregation where everybody agrees about everything is a bad thing. No original fault. We only read what we write. We only hear what we want to hear. We have no other voices speaking in. It's a bad thing. Congregations that demand uniformity. have been a part of these before. Congregations that exist only to magnify their personal preference issues, not doctrinal mission of Christ. What the result is, you get congregations that don't drink wine. You get congregations that don't dance. You get congregations that don't celebrate Christmas. You get congregations that are against the Easter Bunny. You get congregations that are against your kids going trick-or-treating on Halloween. You get and I could just go on forever. But you understand what's happening, right? That's what happens when we get divided on personal preference issues. It's wrong. It's destructive. It takes away our focus from the gospel. It distracts us from the mission of Christ, which is making disciples and edifying believers. When we focus on what separates us from other believers, then what we've done is our preferences have become our idols. You have to agree with me. That's more important, or I'm going to destroy you. Well, then I've made my personal preference an idol is what I've done. So just a caution, and that's why Paul's addressing a whole chapter like this, spilling over into 15, 
to the church at Rome so they can get this matter in order. Let me read verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything. Romans 14, 2. There we go. One person believes he may eat anything. That's the stronger position, by the way. Then it says another person eats only vegetables. Don't want to beat up on any of our vegans here this morning, but it's just Bible. Three. Uh, I may have just sinned. Let's read verse 3. I may have just sinned. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed, God's accepted us both. Does that make sense? God's accepted both of us. So why should, if God's accepted, is there any vegetarians in the room that would like to admit it publicly after I've already scorned you? Okay, so uh, let's pretend. Uh, let's pretend that Miss Porter is a vegan. God says, I've accepted you. Uh, I'm a carnivore. God's accepted me. And if God's accepted you and God's accepted me, then why would you and I fight each other? The same God's accepted us both into his family. We're brother and sister. You don't want to eat meat? Don't eat it. If I want to eat it, don't give. We're, we're fine. That's what he's talking about right there. Very, very simple. We suspect that Paul wrote this. We pretty much know. Paul wrote this to the church at Rome. It's mainly a Gentile congregation. They do have Jews in the congregation. We know that from some of the names that are mentioned. And we suspect that some of the Jewish Christians in the church of Rome struggled to participate in Taco Tuesday and Coronas. We, re we know that. Now, it really wasn't Taco Tuesday. That's our issue. But their issue was kosher. So you're having a small group at your house. You're having tacos and uh, old pastor. And, and you invite your small group. And some of the Jews are in that small group. Their issue on the Jewish side was that the meat wasn't prepared kosher. In other words, the blood wasn't drained according to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. They were raised on kosher diet. The meat has to be prepared in a very clean uh, way. And if the meat wasn't prepared, I mean, can you imagine sitting down at somebody's table and saying, I just have to ask before I eat this, it defiles my conscience. Did you drain the blood from this, you know, so many days? You see what happens. So the Jews, rather than get into all of that, the Jews just said, when we're around our Gentile brothers having fellowship, we'll just go veg. We'll just be vegetarian. We won't eat the meat. And we'll operate in that way. Now, the same concern uh, existed with regard to Jewish holidays. Just imagine that you're a Jew and all your life, just the way you guys celebrate Thanksgiving and, and, and uh, Christmas and Easter and the 4th of July. Just imagine all your life you've been raised in a Jewish family and you celebrate Passover. It's a part of your family tradition. The Passover meal is like Thanksgiving meal, to, you know what I'm saying, to a, maybe to an American. It's part of something you do with your family every year. It was tradition. And now Paul's saying you don't have to keep the traditions. Listen, it'd be hard to give up your Passover celebration with your family, especially if you were a Jew that saw Christ as the Passover lamb. It pointed to Christ. And if you were a born-again Jew and you said that we're going to celebrate Passover still, even though we don't have to, because we recognize the lamb that we is the Son of God. And I get that. But, and these are, these are the issues the church is dealing with. 
So Paul's teaching is basically this. Those of you that eat only vegetables, don't sit in judgment of those that feel free to eat whatever they want. And those of you who are strong, don't despise those who have scruples about these things. And the same goes for religious holidays. Is that fair? Listen, some of you are going to send your kids trick-or-treating in October. Some of you are all bent out of shape about that. Let it go. If one family wants to trick-or-treat, more power to them. If you don't, more power to you. The big thing is we don't destroy each other over the issue. I'm going to put a Christmas tree in my house somewhere in November. And I'm going to leave it up as long as my wife will let me. Okay? She'll, she'll rip it down on the 26th. But I'm just saying, I, I'm going to fight for it to go up. You may not believe that that's a Christian practice to put a Christmas tree in your home. Don't judge me. God's accepted me. You don't want a Christmas tree? I'm fine with you. God's accepted you. And why does everybody have to agree with everybody anyway? Don't make your preference your idol. Do you see the issue here? Some of you are going to let your kids, you're going to give them chocolate Easter bunnies and let them go egg hunting. Some of you think it's a complete pagan practice. Right? Don't judge each other. Let it go. It's not a, it's not a deal. It's just not a thing. God's accepted us both. We're all born again. Just move forward and treat it. The big point is building each other up, not tearing each other down. He makes the point crystal clear in verse 4. Let's read verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master. He stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Do not tear down your brother because they have a different point of view, a different perspective, and a different practice than you have because God intends to make all of us stand until the day of judgment. God's going to bring us all through. He's given us liberty, and he's going to make us stand in our liberty to the very end. Now, Paul makes a little transition right now in verse 5. Now he transitions and he gives the strong some best practices on how to live in their freedom. Best practices. You know what that means in a, in a business sense, right? Here's some general guidelines of be, best way to operate in your freedom. Many of you listening this morning have consciences that are unencumbered by self-imposed regulation. You just, you just live in freedom on dietary matters and on observance of holidays, and you didn't even know anybody been out of shape about Christmas trees or Easter buddies. You're oblivious to all of it, and you're fine, and you're just living in, in your freedom. That's the strong position. So be okay with that. You're in the strong position. Now, to the strong, let me say, here are Paul's best practices. You need to tread gently with those who have reservations. You need to tread gently. You need to deal kindly, tread gently with people who were raised a certain way with baggage. They're the weaker brother, but we have to be kind to them, and we have to treat them gently, Okay. The Bible teaches us to walk respectfully around those who are sensitive to matters of conscience and to try to build up their faith and strengthen them. Uh, we are never to, to stomp their sensitive faith under our liberty. We're never to bulldoze their issue under our sense of living in liberty. Just because you don't have an issue with wine or you don't have an issue with pork or you are love chorizo, just because you don't have an issue with tattoos and piercings and Christmas trees and Easter bunnies and bikinis and rock and roll and public schools or politics or Santa Claus. Just because you don't have an issue, your liberty in Christ does not extend 
to tearing down your weaker brother. Is that fair? That's what Paul's teaching. Now, there's something about that kind of teaching, though, that causes some tension to rise in our native sons and daughters, for sure. As Texans, we are bred to be rugged individualists. For those of you who are not Texans, let me tell you about the people you live among. We are bred to be rugged individualists. We are very independent-minded, independent-thinking people. I hear Texans, even recently, as a few months ago, talking about, well, you remember, we're still a republic. We came in in a different way to the union than the other states. All we have to do is have a vote of our Congress, and boom, we're back out. I mean, Texans still think this way. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And if you study your history, you know we're different than the other states. We were our own country. So we're very independent thinking, individualist thinking, and we want to do what we want to do, and we want to be left alone to live our lives without regard for how it impacts California or New York. So if you're not from Texas, there you go. I need to write more of those. I get more amens. Let me translate it. Let me translate it in personal words so you'll feel more tension about it. I want to exercise my own personal right of choice, and I don't want to give two hoots about whether someone's snowflake conscience is going to get bruised by my freedom. Obviously, the problem with this way of thinking is it's not the Christian way. Now, do you feel the tension? See, the only problem with that Texan way of thinking, it's not a Christian way of thinking. It may even be an American way of thinking. But it's not a Christian, Christ-like way of thinking. The Christian way of thinking is to regard other people more important than myself. The Christian way of thinking is to seek to build you up, not my own opinions. The Christian way is to be more concerned about building up others than fulfilling my own personal agenda. This is what it means for our thinking to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, Texans have an extra heavy lift. Do you see that? Because you're wired to be individualists. When you start preferring other people, you'll know the Holy Spirit's at work transforming your life. Because it goes against everything you were bred to be, to give way, to promote others, to seek the welfare of everyone around you and not your, not your own self. Paul was so free in Christ that he didn't spend every moment trying to exercise his freedom. Paul was free to do as he pleases, which also meant that he was free to yield to others as well. The point that I'm trying to make right now is something Martin Luther, a point he made so beautifully in his book on the freedom of a Christian man. Let me quote you from Martin Luther. To make the way smoother for the unlearned, for only them do I serve, I shall set down the following two propositions concerning the freedom and the bondage of the spirit. Proposition number one, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all subject to none. Amen? That's beautiful, isn't it? Christian is Lord. You're the Lord of your kingdom. You're free and subject to no one. How beautiful is that? Proposition number two. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That one's a little harder to swallow, isn't it? 
you're free, and at the same time, simultaneously, you're a servant to others. For the sake of time, this is really like a three-week sermon, for sake of time, I want to summarize a group of verses, verses 5 through 12. Let me, let me just read you my summary. Because of our justification through the gospel and in light of our union with Christ, we're to live our lives in light of the fact that we are free and simultaneously we are subject to no one, yet simultaneously the servant of everyone. Let me word it this way. We are free to do whatever we please. Whatever you please, you're free to do whatever you please. And yet you are obligated not to do whatever you please just because it pleases you. You say, Pastor, you're talking in circles. I'm describing the Christian life right now just as Paul did in Romans 14. You are free. All things are lawful. You do whatever you want to do. You say, well, then why don't we do whatever we want to do? Well, because. Well, because. We are also obligated to build up other people. And if we just do whatever we want to do, we'll find that we're not building up other people, that we can go so far in our liberty that we actually begin to hurt other people. You see, the point is, your brother does what they do because they believe it honors God. You do what you do. You hold your position because you believe your position honors God, right? And Paul's saying we don't live in isolation. This was the teaching of chapter 8, 9, 10. We are forged together in union in the body of Christ. And so since we live and die connected in the body of Christ, looking down at someone because they have a different viewpoint has to stop. Has to stop. You can't do that. Stop judging because judgment is coming soon enough. And when we are judged, we will not be judging each other. We'll be judged by God. That's the teaching of Romans 14. So should we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Now, many of you are thinking probably about now, wow, there's a lot of implications to this freedom. And there are. You're thinking about, how does this affect wine? How does this affect my view of movies? How does this affect my view of dress code? How does this affect my view of entertainment? How does this affect my... A million other issues are tied up in this teaching in Romans 14. And Paul wanted to drive this teaching home in such a way that it was abstract enough that you would know he's not just teaching about food. He's actually wanted to teach this in such a way that tell you that God wanted this principle to include more than food. He wants it to encompass your lifestyle, actually. So just about food now. We're talking about, like as I said, Easter bunnies and Christmas trees and dress codes and just a million other things are wrapped up in this concept. The natural inclination of, of uh, evangelical Christians is just to say, okay, pastor, just tell me what's right and wrong. Give me a list. This is allowed and this is not allowed and I'll live by that. It's like we always want to just somebody tell me what's right and what's wrong and don't be ambiguous about it. You see, the point is you don't need a comprehensive list of rules of this is right and this is wrong. This is allowed and this is forbidden. The Bible keeps steering you away from that away from a list of rules, and instead the Bible keeps steering you to principles. And here is the principle that Paul is teaching. All believers should pursue edification of other believers. So is it right or wrong? Can I do it or can I not do it? Well, here's the principle. If it edifies other believers, knock yourself out. If it pulls down people, then you can't do it. How simple is that? 
There are some things that maybe you could do at home you couldn't do in public. That's also what it means. It's some things you could do around some believers you couldn't do around other believers. That's also true. Now, all believers should pursue the edification, the building up of the other people in this room this morning. We're to be lifting each other, not pulling each other down. The next section builds on this principle. So you give me about three or four minutes. I think I can land this thing, okay? Romans 14, verses 13 to 23. So in your journal, by verse 13, write these words. Stop judging, start building. Next to verse 13, write, stop judging, start building. And that will carry you down to about 23 under that heading in this chiastic form of teaching that 14 is written in. Let me read verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So in this invitation, every Christian in this room should bow their head and say, God, I should not pass judgment on another believer anymore. Amen? Because I've seen this morning from your word, that's not my role. That's not my place. But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And we could also pray in this invitation this morning, God, help me never to hurt my brother. Help me never to cause my sister or my brother to stumble or, or, or to, to veer from their sanctification in Christ because of my lifestyle. Now, Paul certainly indicates in this chapter that it's possible for you and I to sabotage another believer's walk by our liberty. It's very clear what he's teaching. And it's something serious for you to consider this morning. Those of you who are the stronger, who are walking in liberty, if conscience, there's something for you to consider this morning. Our liberty has the power to mess up another believer's walk. So those of you who are the strong, this is the section we're in, best practices for the strong, you have to consider this morning your liberty. You have it. And it's the strong position. But you also have to know, because you're strong, that your liberty has the potential of hurting your fellow brother. Okay, You can derail someone's uh, a walk. And so you have to remember that. We, may, we need to make sure that the public exercise of our Christian liberty does not push one of our Christian brothers or sisters off of the path of their sanctification. In pursuing our liberty, we cannot damage our fellow brother and sister. Let me read verse number 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, when, when Paul says nothing, that's a pretty comprehensive term. You could say, well, what about beer? What's his answer? Nothing. You say, what about pork? What's his answer? Nothing is unclean. Nothing is unclean of itself. If you guys want a great cross-reference, read Mark chapter 7 this week, where Jesus pronounced all foods clean. It's a whole side note, okay? Nothing is unclean. In itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean do you see that there are people sitting here right now who disagree with much of what I've said I respect your disagreement I respect that because if you think it's unclean then to you it is unclean if you say I think this is sin then it is sin for you for whosoever eats or drinks in, in doubt, it is sin, because anything that's not a faith is sin, the Bible says. 
So if you say, this, I have, I have a conscience that this is wrong. Now, let me talk to Paul for a minute. Your dad's a pastor, wasn't he? No? Who's a, who's a pastor's kid in the room? Oh, right here. Let me talk to Laurel. So for us, Laurel, you and I have a lot of baggage. And what we have to sort out is with a fresh reading of the scripture, you and I have to sort out our feelings of guilt. Are they because of baggage that was given to us? Or are we feeling something because the Holy Spirit says it? And I wrestle with that all the time. Anybody else? I wrestle with that all the time. Because I'm trying to sort out, okay, I was raised that this was wrong and this was right. And here's the list of rules. Am I feeling weird because I was raised with rules? Like the people Paul's writing to. The Jews would have felt the exact same way as you feel on these matters. I can't eat pork. I was raised that that's terrible, unclean. Oh my gosh, you eat a piece of pork, you just your guts fall out and you die. I mean, it just... Uh, but that's not true at all. But that's the way they were raised. And so they had to sort out, and Paul's helping them sort through it now. If you think it's unclean, okay. It's unclean for you. If you can't eat with a clear conscience or, or, or participate in an activity, gosh, when I was raised, we couldn't go to the roller skating rink. Anybody else? I mean, we couldn't be around rock and roll music and, I mean, you know, places like that of the devil where people were roller skating. Who knows what seedy things went on inside there. People having fun and all that kind of stuff. Not allowed. Well, now, as a grown man, understanding my liberty in Christ, I'm like, what were they even thinking? What were they even thinking? There was nothing wrong. What are you saying? So you're beginning to sort this out now with Scripture. Nothing is unclean of itself, but it's unclean if you think it's unclean. Now, let me say it. I just got like two paragraphs, okay? There is a subjective element... To the Christian life. You know, that'll make all of us very nervous, even me. There is a subjective element to the Christian life. Christians have freedom to do what we please. Because you weren't saved by your works. You weren't saved by keeping a list of rules. You weren't saved by anything you did. You're saved understanding justification by faith through Jesus Christ. You're free to do whatever you please. But Paul says this. He says something can be objectively clean, but subjectively unclean. In other words, if someone thinks they're sinning in an area of conscience, then they are sinning in that area of conscience. And you as a stronger Christian may look at that and say, you won't let your kid go to the skiing? What the heck's wrong with you? Moron, grow up. But you can't hold that position. You're not allowed to. Because if they think it's wrong, then for them it's wrong. Now, we hope they'll mature and come to a different understanding of their freedom being justified through the gospel. But until they do, you're not allowed to blow them up. Is that fair? You're not allowed to destroy their, their faith. Paul drives it home again in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace. And especially grab hold of this third one. But of righteousness, peace, and joy... <laughs> In the Holy Spirit, we are not to continually try to deprive ourselves of life's pleasures. We're not monks. We're born-again people living in freedom and liberty because of our justification through the gospel. We don't have to continually deny ourselves the pleasures of life. Paul reinforced this to the church of Colossae, Colossians 2. Paul said, Christianity is not a touch-not, taste-not, handle not 
religion. We are not to live as party poopers running around never having any fun and thinking we're holy because we never have fun. You, that's deluded thinking and it doesn't align with the New Testament. Here's my closing. Because of the gospel, we're free. That's how simple it is. Because of the gospel, we are free. But because we are in union in the body of Christ, we have to view our community as more important than ourselves. I am free, but I'm connected to all of you in the body of Christ, so I have to consider that as I'm exercising my liberty. And I have to make sure that I don't hurt you while I'm exercising my freedom. I'm going to read two more verses. Verse 18. Whosoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. If you will live in this transformed way, understanding you are free, but you're connected to a body in Christ, you will be approved by God. Christ will be pleased with you. And there will be harmony in the body of Christ because we will accept one another with whatever weird and wonderful hang-ups we have. Amen? 19 is the thesis statement of the chapter. Let me read it. Paul arrives at his conclusion now. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, isn't that something we can all sign up for this morning? Let us pursue what makes for peace in the body of Christ and let us pursue this morning what mutually builds up our fellow brother and sister in Christ. The word pursue is a continual action. So I'm asking you this morning, would you go down the path of building up your brother and sister and pursue it for the rest of your life? Engage yourself in the pursuit of building up people around you, making disciples your purpose, building up other folks. Let me close with my thesis question. You ready? How will you live now knowing that the gospel is at stake? Knowing what you know now from Romans 14, how will you live this week and for the rest of your life knowing that the gospel is what's at stake? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's make some decisions this morning about what we've heard. I told you it was a mouthful, it's a heartful, it's a headful to grasp Romans 14. Because it has to do with liberty and it has to do with serving others at the same time, side by side. And maybe as you've been hearing and the Holy Spirit's been working on your heart, you may have come to the conclusion this morning you're the weaker brother. You hold the weaker position. You're not free. You haven't been living in liberty. You've been yet bound by a set of rules, even though Christ has set you free. I'm not sure how you want to word your conversation to Christ in this next few minutes. But I would find a place and get down on my knees and say, God, I think I'm the weaker Christian. By the way, this is something your pastor had to do not too long ago. Get down on my knees and say, God, I think I hold the wrong position on this. I'm, I'm seeing what you're teaching me and I'm the weaker brother. God, I want to, I want to move. I want to grow. So if you sense that maybe you're the weaker brother on some of these issues, maybe you'd ask God to help you move to a stronger conscience position in Christ and fully embrace the implications of justification by faith through the gospel. You're free. 
maybe you realize this morning that your conscience is unencovered and you're the stronger brother. But you've been living your life pursuing your freedom at the detriment of other Christians. And you realize this morning that wasn't the right approach either. You are free, but you're not free to hurt other people, especially your brothers and sisters. Now, that might be something you need to talk to God about for a few minutes this morning and ask Him to help you employ the best practices of walking in Christian liberty going forward. For everyone in the room this morning, I think we could spend just a moment in prayer saying, God, let me view my brother and sister here in the body of Christ as so important and so valuable. God, that I would never do anything to hurt them, to destroy their faith, to hinder them, to steer them off the path in their pursuit of their sanctification to be like Christ. I think that's something worthy of talking out because your liberty has the power to derail someone else. And maybe you know you clearly have derailed someone else. Maybe you need to confess that this morning. And you might even need to go to that brother or sister that you hurt by flaunting your liberty and say, I'm, I'm sorry. It will be a delicate conversation, but you can do it. You come into the house of God this morning and you're hearing about justification by faith in Christ, but you've never experienced a new birth forgiveness, acceptance into the family of God, then this morning, why don't you call upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Why don't you ask Him to come into your heart and save you today? You can do it right now. I'll help you with the prayer, but it has to be from your own heart. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're ready to make that prayer your own prayer, then I want to pray with you this morning. While I'm making this prayer with any who are receiving Christ, any of you who need to join our church, any of you need to slip out to an altar, I want you to do it right now. If you need to join church, come to the front row and just see Miss Lee and say, I'm ready. Sign me up. I want to be a part of the team. I want to commit to a body of believers who will help me in my sanctification and whom I can help through the use of my spiritual gifts. We'd love to have you. If you've never received Christ, I want you to pray with me right now. Pray like this, dear God, I confess to you this morning that I'm a sinner. I know you know that, but it's important for me to confess it to you. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. I can't save myself. And I believe, Jesus Christ, that you're the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I believe you came to this earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross as my substitute, as my sacrifice for sin. I believe you were buried and rose again to be my Savior. Jesus, this morning, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I accept you and receive you into my life as my Lord and Savior. I put all my trust in you today. Adopt me right now into the family of God and cleanse me from my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit today. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me and making me a part of the family of God today. This is my prayer in Jesus' name.